can write on your iPad. Good morning, everybody. Um, we, as Bill said, we and David said, we're starting a series on the Psalms. So uh, we're not going to take the next three years to go through all 150. We're just kind of hitting a few. So it's only going to be four weeks. Um, and then, spoiler alert, we're going to be working through the book of Second Peter through the summer, I think, into the fall. So just you have that to be looking forward to. Um, and so I'm super excited about this. I've always been a huge advocate for the Psalms. It's been something that the church throughout history has um, really cherished. The, the church throughout history has sung the Psalms. They've prayed the Psalms. They've meditated on the Psalms. And, and if I'm I'm going to use broad generalizations. My wife always critiques me when I use generalizations, but at some point they just make life easier. But I grew up in the church, and so if you're similar to me, a lot of times maybe you got kind of the moral kind of approach to the Bible stories, and the Psalms were more or less just something that we used as, as almost like a five-hour energy shot. We went to them when we needed some encouragement, some quick refreshers, but we never necessarily dove deep into the richness of the Psalms. So really, uh, since we're doing such a brief moment through the Psalter, uh, which is just another word for the book of Psalms, the, the, our hope with this series is that you are learning the tools that will help you uh, get a healthy diet of the Psalms, to know how to truly approach the Psalms rather than just doing it as a five-hour energy shot, which, again, is sometimes needed. Sometimes you just need that verse, when my heart and my flesh fail, I know the Lord is my portion and the strength of my heart. Moments when we need that, but we want to approach the scriptures seeking a healthy diet. And so why are the Psalms important? The Psalms are important because it is actually the book of the Old Testament that is the most quoted by Jesus and the apostles. It is the book that is the most directly quoted in the New Testament. And so the Psalms, like I said, have been cherished throughout history. I just got a couple quotes from a few guys. The first one is Athanasius. So he is a fourth century bishop. He was super influential in establishing what we call uh, the Trinity, the idea that God is one in essence, three in persons. He was a huge figure uh, in, in defeating some of the heresies that were cropping up during his time. And so he says this about the Psalms. He says, most scriptures speak to us, but the Psalms speak for us. They speak on our behalf. He also says, you find depicted in the Psalms the movements of your soul, all its changes, its ups, its downs, its failures, and its recoveries, a lot like Bill was working through during worship. Another gentleman, John Calvin, says this. He says, I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. He says later, there is no other book in which there is to be found more express and magnificent commendations, which is just a fancy way of saying praise and acknowledgement, both of the unparalleled liberality of God towards his people and of all his works. There is no other book in which there is recorded so many deliverances, like Bill was talking about David in the cave, nor one in which the evidences and experiences of the fatherly providence and care and concern which God exercises towards us are celebrated with such splendor of diction. So again, just saying very poetically, very um, with much beauty of language, but yet with the strictest adherence to the truth. And so the idea is that there's no compromise between the beauty of the language and the truth that these guys are reflecting upon when it comes to God. So as a quick aside, as a modern application of that, we, we sing this song, many of you may know it, called Reckless Love. But when we sing it here, 
we change the word reckless to faithful. Because the idea is God is omniscient, God is sovereign, God is omnipotent, God has declared the end from the beginning. And so if all these things are true about God, his love cannot be reckless. And so we're not going to take the beauty and wonder of an excellent melody and allow that to jeopardize our proclamation of the truth of God. So then he says, in short, there is no other book, speaking of the Psalms, in which we are more perfectly taught the right manner of praising God, or in which we are more powerfully stirred up to the performance of this religious exercise, which is basically just worship. They, were they had to use way too many words in the 16th, 17th century. They had, everything had to be run on sentences. So each book of the Bible is one unified story in God, but each book of the Bible offers a unique approach to its contribution to the canon. And so we're hoping that with this short series, we will show what the Psalms are and their unique approach. And so what is the Psalter? Well, it's a book of Psalms. Uh, we, we get that. But what is its approach? What flavor does it bring to the canon of Scripture? And so uh, this first point is somewhat technical, but it's really cool to me. And I have the mic, so I'm going to share it. I apologize. So essentially, we have the order of the Old Testament that we're very aware of. So the, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then we have all these history books that work from Joshua all the way to Second uh, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. So in the actual Hebrew Bible, what they do is they have a grouping called the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And we kind of see this in the New Testament. Jesus, when he's on the road to Emmaus, he's talking to his disciples. He says, everything that was written about me in the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, which he's using the Psalms as kind of a, uh, a word including all of the writings. So we see this kind of you know, tripartite division, fancy word just for three parts, uh, of the Old Testament. And so why is that interesting? So the interesting thing to me is that the book, so a lot of times you're doing your Bible reading plan, you get through 2 Kings, and then you turn to Chronicles, and you're like, why? I'm going to read all the same information. I've got to read genealogies for 10 chapters. I'm done. Like, I got through Leviticus, but I'm not going to do Chronicles. This is it. Actually, in the Hebrew ordering, Chronicles is at the end. And so the idea is with the law, the prophets, and the writings, they kind of have a narrative. So you're working through the story of God up into exile, so you get up to Second Kings, and then it switches to the prophets, and the prophets are essentially giving commentary on the history of redemption. They're reflecting upon the fact that Israel was called by God to be a kingdom of priests, to call people back to right and proper living with God, but they didn't do that. They didn't uphold the covenant that they were meant to uphold, and so the prophets are indicting the people, but then they're looking forward to a time when God's people will live faithfully, there will come this person called the Messiah, this one who is the servant, who is the king, he's the branch of David, he's from the stump of Jesse. All these things they're looking forward to. And then uh, on the heels of the prophets, you get then the writings, which continue the commentary, which is the book of Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. And then the narrative will then pick up again with the book of Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah. And then you get Chronicles, which gives you a big sweeping overview of the theology of the Old Testament, and those genealogies focus on this guy, David. David's kind of a big, important character. And so why is that important? It's very technical, but I think growing up, again, like I said, in the church, you kind of learn the stories, you get the moral lesson that you're supposed to take away, but you don't necessarily see how it's meant to connect and keep pointing you back to the story, which ultimately brings you to Christ. And so I like the ordering and the structure of narrative commentary narrative because it is meant to give almost a theological 
flavor as you work through the Old Testament canon, as you work through the story. And so again, the psalm, they kick off the writings, and this is also sometimes called the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, as Bill kind of alluded to, that Psalm 1 really sets this foundation of what wisdom is. And so the Psalter is one book, but it's also been broken up into five, which is meant to mirror the five books of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law. And so again, this is emphasizing that idea that they want you to view this literature as commentary. It is mirroring what a person who is seeking wisdom will do as they are reflecting upon the law of Moses. And so then there's even a flow that it's not fully agreed upon, but there's a general flow of this book, these five books that kind of work through this guy called the Messiah, the anointed one who we then, or is connected to the king, and we know as David. So books one and two, they run from chapter one to chapter 72. Chapter two begins with what we'll look at today, uh, this idea of this anointed one, this one who is declared the son of God, who will rule and subdue the nations. And it ends in chapter 72 with this prayer of Solomon. And Solomon is looking forward, he's the son of David, but he's looking forward to an even greater son of David, who will rule from sea to sea. And so books one and two kind of work through broadly uh, this idea that this king, this anointed one, is going to go through cycles of triumph, cycles of tribulation, but ultimately trusting in God. Book three is kind of the darkest part of the Psalter. In some ways, it's kind of a reflection or meant to help you feel the emotions of the exile. So the end of Second Kings, the nation of Israel is in exile, and so Psalm, book three is getting you in that moment. Psalm 88 is actually probably the darkest psalm in the Psalter because most psalms of lament, which is kind of a category of some songs, a lot of times they start out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? But then they'll eventually turn to this concept of, but Lord, I will trust in you. I will lean on your faithful and steadfast love. But Psalm 88 doesn't really, you never really get that turn. But then Psalm 89 comes, concluding book three, and it again is a reflection on God's steadfast love to David. Book four then continues that hope from Psalm 89 that is going to stress God's sovereign and past forgiveness of the people. And so it's trying to build on that hope. In book five, you get a flurry of psalms that are attributed to David. Uh, and then so it's continuing from book four, this idea of hope that God will not leave his people in exile. God will redeem them, and he will rule the nations through this Messiah, through this anointed one, through this king. And so the last point, so point one was the idea of, of thinking through the ordering of the Old Testament as it's giving you that theological flavoring. Point two is kind of how this is commentary reflecting on the law, reflecting on the five books of Moses. And the last point is that it is post-Davidic. Um, so that's just another technical term that the idea is that the kingship of David and this covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is really the lens from which you're going to read the entire book of Psalms. The idea that God says, look, David is in uh, 2 Samuel 7. He's looking at the tabernacle. At this point, it's just a ratty tent, and this is God's home. This is where God's presence is dwelling, and he is saying, no, I'm we should build God a house. We should build him this big, glorious house. I have a nice, sweet, three-story uh, mansion myself, so we should build God a house. And Nathan comes back with a word from the Lord and says, no, I, you're not going to build me a house. Actually, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And through this dynasty, God will enact his rule through the world. And so 
uh, about half of the Psalms, maybe a little bit more of that, are attributed to David. So this really is the songbook of the king in some sense. And the idea is that it also carries this, this kind of concept of messianic music. music that, I, that this Messiah, which is we're more uh, familiar with it with the term Christ, because Christ is the Greek translation of this Hebrew term Messiah, is connected to the king and littered throughout the Psalms are these royal Psalms, these Psalms reflecting on the kingship. And again, we see that God is going to enact his rule through the Davidic king, and in that covenant he makes in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in verse 19, he says that you've spoken of your servant's house for a long period, for this dynasty. And this is instruction, this is a charter, this is revelation for all of mankind, that this covenant that God makes with David is what is meant for our understanding that, in all honesty, democracy isn't the best form of government. The best form of government will be a monarchy through the Davidic king. In the prayer of Solomon, we see that he said he will rule from sea to sea, from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. And so this is how the Psalter is, uh, what it is focusing on. As we'll see in Psalm 2, it is fo focusing on this Messiah, in which we ultimately know is fulfilled in Christ. That, like I said, Jesus said on the road to Emmaus that all that was written about him in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, and he teaches them what speaks of him. So we can come to the Psalms as Christian scripture. This is our songbook through our Messiah. Bruce Walke, as I was studying, had this quote that I really enjoyed, and he says it better than I could. He says, the, writer of the, the writers of the New Testament are not attempting to identify and limit the Psalms that prefigure Christ or the ones that point to him explicitly. So when Jesus takes on his lips on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from Psalm 22? They're not just looking for those explicit quotations, but rather they are assuming that the Psalter as a whole has Jesus Christ in view and that this should be the normative way, should be the usual way of interpreting the Psalms. Another gentleman, Mark Futado, says this. He says the Psalter as songs are songs by Christ or they're songs about Christ. And so Paul, in Romans 5, he frames all of uh, history as these two figureheads, Adam and Christ. And so he says we have an old humanity and we have a new humanity. And in that, if you can kind of picture, picture Christ as obviously greater than Adam and draw a line up as we're following the Old Testament progression of redemption— we are seeing Abraham, we are seeing Moses, and we are seeing David as we're from Adam looking up to Christ. And so David is at the peak. He really is the culmination of everything the Old Testament is pointing to in terms of, again, prefiguring, foreshadowing, pointing to Christ. Now we see David is called a prophet in the New Testament. We know he's the king, and in Psalm 110 we see that he's connected to a priesthood, that he, in, in terms of Old Testament, David is it. He is the climax. He's the one you look to to get the full picture in terms of what will Christ ultimately be. He will be the great prophet, he will be the king, and he will be the priest. So why does this matter? Long term, a lot of information, but long term, we want to interpret the Bible rightly. So that's why this matters. Ultimately, Paul said to Timothy, who was a pastor elder, Paul says, look, you need to study to show yourself approved, rightly handling the word of truth. So long term, we want to come to the Psalms and interpret them properly. But short term, I think this is really important, especially as 
we have many in this congregation who are dealing with health issues. We prayed for the parents today, and we wonder, why, oh Lord? Why these struggles? Why do these things happen? Why are we dealing with these um, things we can't control, these things that are horrible? Like, it's, it's terrifying, especially, you know, we've we got plenty of parents here who have little kids. That, this is like the nightmare situation. But we have a king who this is his songbook. And in this songbook, as we said, we see all the displays of the anatomy of the soul. We see all the emotions. So if this is our king's songbook and then it becomes ours as we find refuge in him, it encourages us because the king is our priest who intercedes for us. And he can intercede in a way that he can empathize with us because this king was betrayed. This king was betrayed with a kiss. This king was tired. He was exhausted. He understood what it meant to just come to the end of the energy you have, but yet to persevere. This king wept, lamented, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Taking Psalm 22 on his lips. This king was beaten. In the Psalms, we have that they uh, beat him and they cast his clothes for lots, prefiguring what would happen at the crucifixion. This king cried out to his father. Jesus understands what anything we can go through, but he did so without sin. And so we can come to this king, and we can find refuge in this king. And so uh, that's kind of a quick introduction to the Psalter. Uh, and because I'm a glutton for punishment, I'm like, why don't I just do Psalm 1 and 2, like in the same, same message? This should be easy. But uh, we're going to attempt to work through Psalm chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, so I'm just going to read it, and then we'll just kind of quick work through it. We're not going to dive too, too deep. Um, all right, so Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so as Bill kind of said, this, this uh, Psalm 1 really kicks off uh, the Psalter. And it presents us with two ways to live. Like Bill said, what will you build your foundation upon? And so in Hebrew, wisdom literature really gets to the nitty-gritty. It cuts through a lot of the nuance. It cuts through the gray area, and it just basically gives you it in black and white. Uh, and sometimes that's needed. A lot of t gray area is needed. We, we have Christian liberty. We discuss things. We wrestle through things. But sometimes at the end of the day, we got to get to either-or situations. And so again, uh, we see here that you have the blessed man. You have the one who is wise, and you have the wicked, the one who essentially would be the fool. And so we kick off with this word blessed, and blessed can also be translated as happy, depending upon maybe what translation you have, but it's not just simply circumstantial happiness. This man is blessed. He is in the favor of God. He's enjoying all of the enjoyment of God's presence as far as we can, this side of eternity. And so what is he characterized as? Why is he enjoying this blessing of God? Well, we see both a negative aspect, and then we see the positive aspect. So this negative person does not, as it says in the beginning, walk in the counsel of the wicked. So he is not walking alongside them, and they have his ear. 
that he is listening to their advice. He's listening to their counsel. He's beginning to essentially be discipled by the wicked. If he allows this to continue, we see this progression uh, of things kind of getting worse for this individual uh, who's negatively contrasted to the blessed man. He's now standing in the way of sinners. And this isn't standing in their way as if to block them, but he's standing in their way as if he's walking in their shoes. Not only was he heeding their counsel, but now he is being a disciple. He's not being discipled. He's being a disciple of the wicked. Continuing on, if he goes in this path, he is now sitting in the seat of scoffers. So not only is he heeding their counsel, not only is he being a disciple of the wicked, but now he's teaching others, he's discipling others to be wicked. Spurgeon, uh, Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He said, they then become themselves pestilent teachers and tempters of others. And thus they sit in the seat of the scornful. They have taken their degree in vice. They've graduated with honors in how to do wickedness. And as true doctors of damnation, they are installed. And they are looked up to by others as masters in worthlessness. And so this is obviously not what this blessed man does. So what does he do? We see in verse 2, his delight, his joy is in the law of the Lord. And on the Lord's law, he meditates day and night. And so I think uh, a point of note is the word law can also be translated with the idea of covenant instruction or just instruction. Now, it's not that law is a bad translation, but the idea of, you know, if we're honest as Americans, we just kind of look at the law as a rule of do's and don'ts. Don't do this, don't get in trouble, or this is what we should do. But the idea in Hebrew with carrying that uh, that understanding of instruction is the aim of the law, the aim of instruction is to grow in wisdom. That wisdom is a major theme that runs throughout the scriptures. All the way back in Genesis 3, when Eve was being tempted by the serpent, we read that the woman saw that this tree, this tree that they were not supposed to eat, was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, it looked good, she knew it would taste good, but this is the kicker, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And so at the very beginning, Eve looked for an avenue. She was deceived by the servant and looked for an avenue that she would gain wisdom apart from the instructions, the words, the law from God. And so we see this man who is wise, this man who is blessed, he is seeking to delight in this instruction. He's not going to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil deceived by the serpent, but he is going to God to receive instruction. And then he's also meditating on it day and night. He is chewing on it. He's reflecting upon it. He's desiring to display it, to hear, obey, and share what he is learning in this law. And so the results of this, he then is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. So this is the benefit. Now, again, this is not blessing. This is not prospering in terms of material primarily, but the idea that we are getting back to, uh, as we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount series, the Shalom, uh, the idea that we have peace with God, and that is our true blessing. But the wicked are not so. And so now we have our contrast. The wicked are not doing these things. But instead, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. They have no root. They're not planted by streams of water that will yield their fruit in their seasons. And it says they have no substance. They have nothing to grab onto. They have nothing that will hold them. 
And so because they're like chaff, they will not stand in the day of judgment because they are not seeking God's instruction. They're instead seeking essentially the wisdom of the serpent, which led to death and exile. And then they will not be in the congregation of the righteous. These people will not be in the covenant community. Concluding, we know the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so the Lord knowing, obviously he knows the wicked, but this knowing is a knowing of a special love and affection, that the blessed man, the one who is wise, has God's favor. Those who are righteous, they have God's favor, but the wicked are outside that. They do not have that. And so, how am I doing on time? Uh, We're going to roll into Psalm 2. And so I'm just going to read through, and then we'll just work through like we did. So why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so we finish Psalm 1 with this kind of implied question of which path you will take, the wicked path or the wise path. And so Psalm 2 kicks off with the nations obviously choosing the path of the wicked, that they are seeking and plotting in vain to overthrow the rule of Yahweh or God and the rule of his Messiah. And so this is the first mention of, in the Psalter of this word anointed, which is the Hebrew Messiah, which we know more commonly as Christ. And so again, these, these two Psalms are really kicking off the trajectory of the Psalter. Psalm 1 with the idea of wisdom, and Psalm 2 bringing in this concept of the Messiah, of this one who is chosen by God, who is the Davidic king, who will rule all things with fairness. And so the nations are seeking to burst their bonds, and cast away their cords from us. That the nations, in some way, the psalm is saying that uh, these nations are under the rule of the Messiah and his God, even though you don't ever see that really come to fruition in the Old Testament. But yet it's pointing forward to, ultimately, that God will reverse the curse from Genesis 3 through this Davidic king. And so it's prophetically commentating on that the nations, even though they're unaware of it, in the rebellion, are rebelling against the rule of God and his Messiah, the Davidic king. And so God, in verse 4, he doesn't panic. He's not concerned. He's not reckless about anything. But he laughs because he knows that their plotting, their rebellion, is ultimately just a bunch of grasshoppers, a bunch of ants, as we see in Isaiah 40, shaking their fists at their great and awesome king. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I've put my king on the throne. I've put my king on Zion. And so then what does the psalmist reflect upon? He goes in verse 7, he's reflecting upon uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. So God says, look, I have set my king. It is done. 
I have made a covenant. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And this theme of sonship is very critical throughout the scriptures. We see that Adam, in some sense, is a son of God. And then through him comes the nation of Israel. God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 4 that Israel is his firstborn son. And so now in the Davidic covenant, God is taking the son and offspring of David, saying, you're not just David's son, you are now my son. And so the king as an individual is now representing the nation as a whole, that the king is kind of the true son, and that those connected to him can enjoy the benefit of being sons and daughters through the king. And this king is told to ask of God for the nations, that he would rule them. And this is, again, remembering, if we're following the flow of Old Testament history, this is remembering that the Davidic covenant is the charter, it is revelation for mankind. That he's to end, ask for the nations because ultimately he will rule the nations. So then, at the end of this psalm, we have a call to wisdom. He, God says, look, nations, therefore be wise. Remember Psalm 1, you can choose which path, so choose the right path. Choose the correct path. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Because as we know in Exodus 34, when God reveals himself to Moses, he says, look, I'm a God who's merciful and gracious and compassionate and abounding in steadfast love, but I will by no means clear the guilty. So there will come judgment for the consequences of raging against God. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, or some translations have pay homage to the Son, pay homage to this Messiah, pay homage to this Christ, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now, I think that's an interesting verse because the idea that when Jesus comes, we have him saying that I am gentle and lowly in heart. And in some not difficult way, but in a healthy tension way, these two truths are correct. And if we're honest, we have a tendency to maybe pivot one to the other. We want to have the gentle and lowly Jesus, and we maybe drift too far in terms of not calling for repentance or, you know, being, you know, hippie Jesus who forgives and there's no judgment. Or we maybe are aware of churches that seem like it's all law, it's all judgment, and they're understanding an angry God, an angry Messiah, and they don't remember that Jesus is calling people to find rest in him because he is gentle and lowly. And so both these things are true. And we conclude this psalm with blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so Psalm 1 and 2, be, Psalm 1 began with blessed, and it ends in Psalm 2 with blessed, which is just a fancy word called inclusio, or as Jason mentioned uh, in our Sermon on the Mount class, that it's like a sandwich. So most people appreciated his sandwich reference more than my fancy term, so it broke my heart. But so the idea is that the blessed man the one who's seeking wisdom, the one who's not walking in the counsel of the wicked, the one who's delighting in the law of God, this guy is going to seek out refuge in this, this Messiah, this Christ, this anointed one, this king. That's what the wise person will do. And so in essentially in a sentence, summarizing this sermon, uh, this sermon don't be foolish, seek refuge in the king. Wise living is trusting in the king's provision that he will take care and redeem and provide for his own. Wise living is seeking the king's instruction because wisdom is our aim, that we value wisdom, that we seek it and we, we treasure it like 
gold and silver and things that are refined. And then uh, I think another, so um, con- again, thinking through this sermon series, how to interpret the Psalms, how to have a healthy diet of the Psalms, there's a couple passages in Ephesians and Colossians that many might be familiar with. The idea that uh, don't be, or be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another, so addressing our church family in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so it's important for us to know and be familiar with the Psalter and have the Psalter embedded deep within us because this is what Paul is commanding those filled with the Spirit to do to encourage the church. Colossians 3 is a parallel passage where it says to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in what? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so it's connecting the idea of the words of Christ, obviously with the teaching of Christ, but even to the Old Testament. That Jesus, again, knows that the Psalter is his. It is music about him, and it becomes our songs. It becomes our benefit as we seek to find refuge in him. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, Lord, we love you and we love your word. Lord, teach us to delight in your law and your instruction, Lord, that we may seek wisdom. Lord, I pray that we would value wisdom more than any earthly treasure, Lord. Guard us, especially as as Americans who enjoy such freedom and uh, material blessings, Lord, knowing that these are still good gifts from you. Uh, As Bill prayed that this, this... the chop system and medicine and all these all these benefits that come with this technology are good gifts from you, Lord, but so quickly they can be treasured and valued more than seeking and meditating on your word and striving to for wise living in this world. Lord, we pray that this this book of Psalms would become a treasured joy of our church, Lord, that we would address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Lord, that we would teach and admonish one another in psalms. Lord, help us to take refuge in the King. Lord, when we have life's struggles, Lord, when we go through ups and downs, Lord, that we would seek our King who can empathize, who can be compassionate, Lord, because he uh, was a man. He took the form of a servant. Lord, he was betrayed. He was abandoned by his brothers. Lord, he was beaten, was mocked, was crushed ultimately for our iniquities as we read in psalm 53 Uh, but lord he was vindicated and resurrected that he came through um, lord humiliation to exaltation and as we seek refuge in him lord we do the same we know that we will be persecuted in this life and that we can come to the psalms and find refuge in the fact that our king went through the same humiliation And we know that, Lord, we will have glory and joy with you when we are finally in that wonderful moment of Revelation 21 when you are dwelling with us and wiping away every tear and making all things new. So, Lord, we thank you for your anointed. We thank you for your Messiah. We thank you for Christ and his work on our behalf. And we pray these things in his name because through him we can come to you. Amen.